that was the opening music to Farewell to Manzanar, which is an upcoming episode that we're going to be uh, releasing where we talk about that film. It was a made-for-TV movie. And today we're actually going to be talking about the Japanese internment in 1941 and kind of what was going on at that time, and that's a lead into that film. Where did you grow up? I grew up here in Los Angeles until Pearl Harbor. And then, as I think you know, uh, Japanese Americans on the West Coast were summarily rounded up and uh, sent into uh, 10 barbed wire internment camps. Uh, I was uh, four at the time of uh, Pearl Harbor, and I was too young to really understand what was going on. But I still do remember that day uh, when uh, armed soldiers, soldiers with guns, bayonets on them, came to our home to order us out. I remember that as a very scary day. That was George Takei talking about his experience in the Japanese internment camp in Arkansas. And there's a bunch of great uh, YouTube videos with uh, him talking about this in different interviews. And I would highly encourage you to go check those out. I'll, I'll link those in the descriptions uh, in the description for this episode today and I'm Matt Johnson and I'm coming to you from North Bend where we have sun today no more rain at least for today and this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles welcoming everyone back to classic movie reviews and I'm glad to hear that it stopped raining up there for a while and there's no chance of flooding today. No, but it sounds like you're going to get some yeah, rain. We hope, so we hope to. I, I, yeah. you, you asked me to send it down your way, and I, I, I did Thank some you. Uh, incantations. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't yeah, realize you apparently. had that kind of power. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. It's good to know. So um, the name of this whole uh, experience in the early 1940s to the middle 1940s was centered around the... Uh, War Relocation Authority that was established uh, by President Roosevelt through an executive order, uh, Executive Order 9022, that was signed. I think it was 90, wasn't it 9066? I'm sorry, 9066, yeah. I had another one I was looking at. Uh, and it was signed on February 19th, 1942, so we're just passed by two days the... Uh, 78th anniversary of that signing uh and it, well i think that was a, that was another reason i wanted to do this episode because that that just that anniversary was just a couple days ago as a, as we record yeah this. i think our, it's 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 a it's good time but any time to talk about this is a good time but it it's uh, right right at the same period of time 78 years later uh so where to begin this so there's so much to talk about this all started really Oh, about three years ago, when uh, we were we took a trip up to Lone Pine Independence Bishop and and spent uh, that part of that time with two visits to the Manzanar uh, uh, Relocation Center internment camp, which is just north of Lone Pine, and it's a it's a beautifully done recreation of a horrible event. In the uh, in the period of time that we're talking about, but they've done an excellent job of restoring the um, the main community center with a with a great museum and a list of every person that was interred there, and then they've set up two uh, barracks that are exactly replicas of what 
the camp was like when it first opened in 1942. So that got me thinking about this. And I think even at that time, Matt, we talked about this whole episode in our country's history. And so I knew right away I wanted to do some something that had to do with Manzanar. And there aren't a lot of films about it. But Farewell to Manzanar is one that is an excellent film. And um, it was originally broadcast on NBC in 1976. And anyway, that sort of all kind of came together with our discussion today. So, uh, yeah, I, I did some research, and I, I have not been to visit any of these camps, although there is one in Idaho that I think I could probably go to fairly easily. And I, and I discovered that one of the holding camps... Uh, for for Japanese Americans and and people of Japanese descent in the Seattle area was actually in Puyallup, and I think it might have been the Puyallup Fairgrounds. Oh yeah, uh, because they were they were talking about how uh, they were rounding up people before the camps had even been built, and they were they were held in in these uh, temporary camps for months in converted stables and, and kind of uh, just temporary tents and things like that. So I, I, I definitely want to uh, take a trip to visit. I'd love to come down and visit you, and then you and I could go together. Yeah, let's plan on doing that because it's, it's, it's worth the, it's worth the uh, trip. Uh, Manzanar is about 230 miles north of Los Angeles, and... Uh, there's a lot to see there. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned all these other assembly centers and isolation centers, and they went by many names. So I I dug into that a little bit more. Um, the big ones that we hear about a lot were the uh, were the relo- were the uh, 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 war uh, relocation authorities internment camps. I want to come back to that in a minute, but. There were also these uh, setups, civilian assembly centers. There were 18 of those where people had to gather to be assigned to where they were going. The Justice Department ran nine camps for uh, detention of people, and one of those was in Fort Missoula, Montana. Uh, Then they had citizen isolation centers. There were three centers for, quote, problem inmates from the other locations. Then the Federal Bureau of Prisons had three camps or, or places. And then the U.S. Army had 18 facilities. And these uh, we don't hear as much about, but they were for German and Italian detainees. And, and just to continue a little bit more, because it's quite a list, there's the Immigration and Naturalization Service facilities. There were seven of those. And they were set up again for the detention of German and Italian men that were arrested right after Pearl Harbor. And then, if that's not enough, there were camps in uh, Canada. There were tw- uh, In Canada, they had 21,000 detainees, and they had camps it set up in Peru, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, and Mexico. And then in Hawaii... One-third of the population in 1941 was Japanese. And so they took 1,500, quote, suspects and sent them to the U.S. camps. So it was a larger scale, and the camps were located along the west a lot. 
but also in, in Ohio, Arkansas, and even on Ellis Island in New York uh, City. Yeah, I, I read there was a hundred. There was a hundred and twenty thousand people that were rounded up uh, as part of the Japanese relocation. Um, and it, it, I think it, it it bears just pausing for a moment and and recognizing that many, if not most, of these people that were rounded up were American citizens. They were they were either naturalized or or born in America. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm glad you brought that up because I have that statistic as well. I really got into this. 62% of the people that were detained were U.S. citizens. And the remainder were, for the most part, first-generation Japanese immigrants who were not eligible for citizenship. Remember in the Farewell to Manzanar, the father talked about how he left Japan and he wasn't able to become a citizen in the United States because of the laws. So that was the other group, but but almost two thirds were uh, could have been a person next door. And you know, I think what what also brings it home to me is we have uh, a relative that might have experienced this firsthand, without men- mentioning any names. Yeah. Um. So yeah, just imagine you're an American citizen, you're living your life, and then Pearl Harbor happens, and you're just as horrified as anybody would be of what what happened there with that attack and sort of what that means for the United States and the war and, and all that and then what I what I was reading was that a lot of folks uh, men went to their local uh, I don't know army uh, like recruitment office and they wanted to sign up to fight in the war and they were summarily rejected they were enemies of the state, even though they were they were American. For they there was a there was a there was like a form that the four C or something like that. But yeah, I just was I was just contemplating the horror of of sort of this realization that must have dawned on people as uh, you know Japanese this, people of Japanese descent as they were realizing what was happening. Yeah, I thought the uh, again we're we're not really delving into the movie today, but I thought they did an excellent job in the uh, movie Farewell to Manzanar, in kind of showing what happened when this all took place. You had like just a couple of days to get to get whatever you could carry together, and then you had to go to one of these civilian assembly centers and wait to be assigned to a, a camp or a location. Uh, I know I was texting you the night I watched that film. It was just um, overwhelming to me emotionally uh, how how that affected people. It's a really powerful movie, and I think it that's one of the reasons why I wanted to just kind of talk about it a little bit more, what was going on outside of the film, because I feel like there's so much to talk about of what is actually happening to the characters in the movie. Um, this would be a good way to set the stage for, for that discussion. What what really struck me was having been to Manzanar on two occasions and spent a lot of time there. How closely those scenes in the movie of them in the camp barracks looked exactly like the ones that they've reconstructed. I have to give credit to the uh, 
I guess it's the Bureau of the uh, National Park Service that runs it. I'm not quite sure, but they've done an excellent job of restoring that. So you you get a sense of what it's like to have been in those places. I would like to uh, see this film that was on NBC brought back and sh and shown maybe to a wider audience. When the film was made, they did show it in 8,500 elementary schools and I think 1,500 high schools as a part of a course on what had happened during that time. And much like, you know, the years go by uh, and you, with the Holocaust and uh, even today the, the uh, terror that goes on in, in these kinds of situations, people, I think, generally, as time goes by, it gets kind of lost in the fog of history. But it sure came back to me. Yeah, I think... I, I know that my kids were taught about this in, in school, so I know that it's still a thing that people, at least in the school district that my kids went to, are taught or aware of. Um, I, 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 don't, I think that it's, it's such a, an important event and in the history of the United States, and, and certainly not the last, unfortunately, or the first where this has happened, but um, there's, there's such people that experience this are still alive and can still talk about it, like George Takei. There's, there's so much information, like you can go visit the camps. I, I, I think that it's something that maybe people should be more aware of. I wish that more people were more aware of it. I, I, I have noticed at least that there's been a lot of discussion about it this week because it is the anniversary and it's nice to see people talking about it. But I, I, I could see, you know, there was the movie Snow Falling on Cedars that, that was based on a book and that came out in the late 90s or early 2000s. Uh, but that was about leading this, this these events leading up to the Japanese internment uh, in the Seattle area specifically. And I think that movie did pretty well, and it was a, it was a well-received book, so it's nice to see that it is still something that, you know, people are talking about. But, you know, this, this movie in particular, I think, could be remade as a, as a big, you know, production and, and do really well. Oh, I agree. I agree. Even if they took this uh, film and restored it or updated it digitally, it would be powerful to see. Was, there was also the movie with Dennis Quaid that we mentioned in an earlier episode, that kind of took place in the same period of time, and I, uh, I believe the title of it is "Come See the Paradise." And he either marries or is engaged to a Japanese woman, and they're separated because she has to go to a, a uh, assembly center, and then is off to one of the internment camps. I, I have to say, though, here sitting in my office this morning, in in, in my home. Is nothing like going sorry I'll have to come back to this <coughs> yeah it's 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 a it's a super emotional topic I, I don't blame you um, I think it if you can Put yourself in the position of somebody who has had this happen to them, even if you can just imagine that you're going about your day, 
and you hear a knock at the door and there are armed military personnel outside and they're here to escort you to a train and the train then is going to take you to this camp and you have very little warning and very little notice that this was going to happen. You have no ability to preserve any of your belongings or your property. And and once you get on the train, there's an armed guard on both sides of the of the train car. Um, and when you go through a, a town, you're ordered to pull the shade down on the window because they don't want anybody outside of the train to see that there's a train full of Japanese Americans on board and then you arrive at your destination at one of these camps and you get out and you're you're just a lot of these camps have been described as like a hellscape just like the the worst possible kind of living conditions you can imagine in some of the most desolate areas in the country and you arrive and the camp's not even built all the way yet and so you're you're going to be charged now with building your prison essentially, which is what happened. Uh, they they were they weren't completely done when they arrived, and they had to work on finishing them out. It's yeah, I, it's tough. I'm, yeah. I'm, I've kind of gathered myself here. I um, what I was trying to say earlier is there's nothing like stepping out of your car at Manzanar. We were the last time we were there. It was March of 2016. It's cold. It's windy. It's isolated. It's barren. The Sierra Nevadas are close by, but I mean, it's it's a chilling experience just to be there to visit it. Let alone to be put on a bus and taken there, and have no idea when you'll ever get out because the war had just begun. It, it, it's as powerful a movie to me as uh, watching Schindler's List about the Holocaust. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm... <laughs> uh, no, you're good. You're good. Um, so I, wanted, I, I did some research as well on this, and uh, beyond sort of the obvious racism that's involved here, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and, and there's a Twitter thread by Dr. Sarah Tabor, which I will link to. But it, it makes a really good case for the fact that the call for Japanese internment was initiated by uh, the Farming Association in, in California. And it was just hours after the bombing of Pearl Harbor that this association was calling for the internment of Japanese Americans. And I, I won't go into all the detail, and I, I don't want to sound like some kind of conspiracy theorist or anything like that, but you can read about how the Japanese farmers, Japanese American farmers and, and farmers of Japanese descent were you know, orders of magnitude more efficient and productive than than their counterparts uh, in like the fertile valleys of Southern California. And I think there was an opportunistic moment there where these folks saw an opening to kind of get rid of the competition in a way. And, 
you know, once that ball got rolling and once sort of the hysteria around uh, this fear of, you know, Japanese invasion and that all Japanese looking people were, were spies and uh, saboteurs got going, it was sort of like, you, you know, you couldn't stop it. And, and think about it, the, the president at the time was ha, historically, at least the way I was taught, has been considered one of the most liberal presidents in history and he has, he he signed this order to to do this yeah there's a there's a little piece I'm, I'm glad you sent me that information that she's put together i want to read that i haven't had a chance to do that um but the original uh, director of the war location authority was dwight eisenhower's brother milton eisenhower and after about two months trying to put this thing together and heading it up, he left. He was so not in agreement with what was going on that he, he left his job, he left that office. I didn't know that until I started looking at it. Um, and then it, you know, it brings me back to uh, my growing up in, in the Rocky Mountains and the, and the uh, history of our country in relation to Native Americans or First Peoples, and I would love to see a film about that that is as well done as Farewell to Manzanar or Schindler's List about uh, the history you have there. I think that would be very good for our country to, to do that. Gosh, I know, there's, I know I've seen some movies that I thought did a good job of portraying that, and now I'm struggling to think of what they are, but that would be... I think we should definitely do some research around that and, and see if we can find a couple because that's another dark and and I would say ongoing dark chapter in our in our country's history. Yeah, and for me more so because where I grew up in, in central Montana, uh, it's not that far from one of the reservations. But uh, back to our theme for today, I, I did a little... Uh, research on Manzanar. It was originally a town. I had no idea it was it because when you when you go there and and see where it is, you think, what in, what could possibly be here that would attract someone? It's just hmm. so barren. But it was a town for only uh, nineteen years. <laughs> so oh. from, from nine, <laughs> was it like mining? Or it was must it have like been mining a, or something. From 1910 to 1929, <laughs> it was a farming, probably a farming community. But then the uh, Los Angeles Department of Water and Power bought up the water rights and the land, and people were relocated. For, for, that's a whole different story. That's <laughs> oh, that's alluded to in the in the film <laughs> Chinatown. That they oh, they kind yeah, of skirt yeah. that issue in Chinatown. Yeah. That's right. We're uncovering layers of, of film opportunities here. Well, and, and I still am boggled. Like, it boggles my mind, just on a side note related to water and Los Angeles, that there's a pipeline that runs from the Columbia River all the way down to Los Angeles that carries water. Really? From the Columbia? Wow. <laughs> um, well, Manzanar is in the Owens Valley, just like I say, north of Lone Pine. It was originally a kind of an area where First Peoples or Native Americans would move to uh, and move in and out of in, in, kind of as the as the weather changed and their needs changed before World War II. Uh, 
and it's now a, a, a well-done National Historic Site. And if you can't make it there, uh, if you look it up on the uh, on the website on the internet, you'll see a lot of background that's really helpful. Uh, it's it's just a heart wrenching for me to talk about it. I think I think this also this topic is so much more powerful because you have been there and it's sort of like going and 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 i i would equate it to like if when i went to germany and in my after my first year of university and and went to see the concentration camp that was outside of munich and how powerful that was and and what a incredible imprint that left on me at a at a fairly young age and um just you know it it just makes it so much more real than just reading something on the internet or watching a youtube video or a movie you know yeah physically walking around manzanar both in the big uh building with the museum and the history and then out across these uh boardwalks i think to the to the reconstructed sites and it's windy and it's cold and i'm only going to be there for an hour or two not three years Uh, again which the film i thought did an excellent job of portraying the the isolation and the the severity of what they had to go through there was a as i was doing some research i found a, a home uh, well, it's not video. Um, film camera. Somebody sm- somebody smuggled in a film camera to one of the concentration camp. Oh, sorry, jeez, one of the internment camps. I don't know. I guess there's a difference to me. It's like barely a difference between those two terms. But there's about two and a half minutes of of film footage of what it was like inside the inside the camp that this uh, Japanese American person had taken and it's it's again one of those things that's kind of like watching a movie that's about it and then watching some actual footage from the time it's it's even more real and powerful to see real people and and their expressions on their face and what they were going through uh through that little that little two minute clip there one of the things they did in the movie uh, was they talked about the uh the man that brought his camera into into Manzanar and he, he made all kinds of photographs mm-hmm. those photographs are at the museum at oh, Manzanar cool. okay. and uh, yeah. one of my favorite local uh, programs here in Los Angeles is one that Huell Hauser does he did thousands of these half hour and one hour programs about California he spent an hour on one of his programs going to Manzanar and he, he actually had someone there with that camera and they oh and they were gosh. using it to make some photographs. I can't remember now if in the museum at Manzanar, I don't know if they run that video or not. They do have some videos of, you know, later in the camp life like in 30, 43 and 44 they uh they had programs and that sort of thing and I I watched that. It may ver- I may very well have watched that two and a half minutes. So there was a Supreme Court decision in 1944 basically saying that these camps were illegal and that they were based off of you know racist policies um 
But I, I, am I correct in understanding that people weren't released from the camps until after the end of the war, or did they were they released before the end of the war? Do you know? Well, my knowledge of it is not extensive, but uh, there were people that left before the end of the war. Uh, the, the the controls and the the uh, uh, imprisonment nature of it was lo- loosened up, uh, and people were allowed to make t- changes. But it was it was very specifically drawn out that way in terms of what they could do. And then uh, young men could join the military and serve in the military, and they w- were allowed to leave the camp. So I think what has ha- actually happened. And it's not clear in the film because they tried to cover a lot in two hours. I think they disassembled them over a period of a year or a year and a half in various ways. From what I could tell, it didn't just all happen at one time. It was kind of a process. Yeah, that's that's my understanding. And again, um, they they have a nice auditorium at the museum and they have a film about all of this. And I believe they sort of phased it out. On a stronger note, uh, in the late 1980s, uh, President Reagan um, signed a a bill that uh, was passed that formally apologized to the people that were there, and they were paid a reparation uh, at that time. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think this just yesterday here in California in Sacramento, the legislature was going to consider a formal apology from the state of California, probably along the lines of the one that was done in 1988 or 1989. I do not know the outcome of that because I don't know if that was up for a vote or was just in the hearing process. So it continues to uh, to unfold, uh, much as it does with the Holocaust and some of the other uh, genocides that have occurred around the around the world over decades and centuries uh, i just did a i just did a search the california lawmakers on thursday unanimously passed a resolution formally apologizing for its role in sending 120,000 japanese americans to internment camps during world war ii so they they unanimously wow. passed that our podcast is timely it makes me wonder if other states have done the same thing i do want to mention that colorado during this whole time the governor of colorado said there'll be no way that i allow uh, Japanese American citizens in Colorado be to be taken to internment camps, and I don't know the outcome of that, but I don't believe people were relocated out of Colorado. Now, as a result of this, this gentleman lost the next election because it was not a popular well, move at the time. But it was, you know, good for him for standing up and doing the right thing. Yeah, because I, I, I did some. It, yeah. it, it, it just, I still, I'm still, uh, it's still like amazing to me that these were american citizens and they were rounded up without any due process and without any uh trial without any it's just like you look you look japanese you're or you know you're you're japanese yeah. ant- ancestry and you're going you know and, and george takei says that when i was a teenager my father told me that our democracy is very fragile but it is a true people's democracy both as strong and as great as a people can be, but it is also as fallible as people are. And that's why good people have to be actively engaged in the process, sometimes holding democracy's feet to the fire in order to make it a better, truer democracy. And I, and I thought that that was, uh, I mean, 
George Takei is a hero of mine anyway, but it sounds like his dad was an amazing person too. And I, I love the optimism and sort of the perseverance that that, that statement embodies. Yeah, no, no kidding. And there was some of that that came through in the film. Oh, you definitely. Know, that, that was that was uh, hopeful. Hopeful. What's what's hard for me to digest, if you will, is that this happened in my lifetime. Now, at the time, I was well, like two or three years old, so I didn't have a lot of say in that. But these are not past events in some far off land three hundred years ago. These are right down the street. I don't want to go too far down this road, but I, I. I I firmly believe that that it could happen again. Like I, I really do think that under the right circumstances, it could happen again. And and we have to stay vigilant, and we have to stay involved because you look at the xenophobia in politics right now, and what really sort of drove our current president to gain the ascendancy that that he has. It really was around this idea of closing the border and the southern border and, and you know, this fear of, of immigration and and continues to be a real strong and powerful talking point. And I think that there's that possibility of something like this happening again. And so, you know, I, I just think that it's important that we keep talking about this. It's important that we do have these discussions and do this research and think about it because we don't want this to happen again. At least I sure as hell don't. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think the thing, too, that surprised me is when I read about this in more detail, how other countries along the coast were involved in the same thing, from Canada all the way down to Chile. And the one that got yeah. to me the most was Brazil and Argentina. They're not even on this side of the uh, continent. <laughs> They're on the Atlantic. Yeah. But the other thing I want to mention is we, we shouldn't forget that there were several thousand Germans and Italians that were also put into different kinds and different levels, not this kind of level, but into detention and, re, and being retained, uh, detained. Yeah. So, uh, and I think if you look around the world, it's, it's, it's been a lot of different places, Cambodia, Africa. So you're, you're right on that we need to be aware and vigilant to this because it could happen just about anywhere. Uh, I have one more thing that I that I kind of that kind of like uh, rang a bell for me, and I and I did a little bit more research on this. But uh, I'm a huge Star Wars fan, and as anybody who's a huge Star Wars fan knows, a lot of the characteristics of the Jedi are sort of based off of like samurai mythology or you know even in in some ways maybe historical samurai fact but um in the prequel the third prequel revenge of the sith uh emperor palpatine issues executive order 66 which is an executive order to basically have his army kill all of the jedi and I and I and I realized that the executive order nine zero six six, which was the executive order to intern the Japanese, ended with the digit six six. And so there's quite a bit of fan theory that executive order six six in the prequels is a direct callback to 
that executive order 9066 and especially given the amount of influence that Japanese culture had on Star Wars wow. in, in the early years so I, I think George Lucas I think that was on his mind as he was writing writing the prequels and and the prequels are so heavy into what does it mean to have a democracy how do how do we stay involved and how can democracy slip over into dictatorship or oligarchy and there's a great line in order to ensure the security and continuing stability the republic will be reorganized into the first galactic empire for a safe and secure society This is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. I, I, I think about that in, in, in terms of what is going on in, in modern American politics. <laughs> so anyway, I, I don't know. I, I, not to make light of it, but I, I think that, again, it's just something that we need to keep in our minds and, and we need to stay engaged and stay active. I agree, and uh, I, I think the dogs agree. I hear them in the background. Some neighborhood dogs agree, yes. Not oh, my dogs. Neighbor dogs. Uh, I think I've covered everything. Our, our next uh, podcast will be the actual Farewell to Manzanar movie. Yes. Yep. And so that'll be covered. So that's what's next. up next. So Excellent. Uh, but, what, what, but what's going to be published next, this will be published, and then CoverGirl will be published, and then, uh, and then Farewell to Manzanar. Um, unless we come up with another bonus episode for our patrons because one of the things that i noticed is next week there's a new universal studios movie coming out the invisible man ah you sent me that link yeah that looked great and i thought that it might be fun to see that in the theater and then and then do a bonus episode in between here on the original Claude Rains Invisible Man which is one of my favorite all-time movies. You know, it's funny when you, when you sent me that text on the new movie coming out. The first thing I thought of was Claude Rains in The Invisible Man from 1933. So we could kind of do a, a a podcast of the two films. Bookend bookend. The thing that fasc- the thing that fascinates me about that that story of the Claude Rains original one is what what was going on in his life before he ends up at that little inn, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and I and I and I think I wonder if the new movie doesn't just cover some of that ground a little bit to kind of say in a modern t- retelling a uh, uh, sort of like here's here's how he went kind of crazy, you know, like leading up to uh what happens in that earlier film. But anyway, I don't know. I haven't seen the the new one yet. I, I like that. I'll, I'll I'll make sure to watch it, go to it. And then we can we can bookend our podcast with ninety years, almost ninety years between the first <laughs> Invisible Man and that one. All right, well, all right, well, that was uh, I don't know, that might have been one of our more emotional episodes, but I think uh, for a good reason. So thanks for thanks for sharing what it was like to be there, Dad. I really really do appreciate that you are willing to to do that very emotional yeah totally thank you well (sighs) 
okay, so that was our discussion of uh, some of the events going on in real life uh, that surround the film Farewell to Manzanar and uh, how they may relate to things going on today. And we'll be back next week with our review of CoverGirl. And then after that, we'll see if we're going to do this Invisible Man thing. <laughs> so coming to you from North Bend, it's Matt Johnson. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles, uh, wishing everybody happy movie watching. <laughs> <laughs>